Good evening. Um, welcome to the Eva Coloni Memorial Lecture organized by the LSE Department of Gender Studies and the LSE Inequalities Institute. My name is Sumi Madhok and I'm Associate Professor at the Department of Gender Studies here at the LSE. It's great to see so many of you here this evening and thanks for coming. Before we go to the main proceedings of the evening, I'd like to introduce you to Professor Diane Perrins and to invite her here uh, to tell us a little bit about the Eva Coloni Trust, of which she is a trustee, and of the work that it does. Professor Perrins is Professor Emerita in Political Economy at the Department of Gender Studies at the LSE. She's a pioneering feminist economist and geographer. Her work has been enormously influential, not least in directing attention to the study of gendered inequalities under globalization, financial crises, and austerity. Among her many influential publications is the much uh, acclaimed book, Globalization and Social Change, People and Places in a Divided World. Professor Diane Perrins. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of the Ava Colony Memorial Trust, I would like to add my welcome to everyone to tonight's event and to thank the International Institute of Inequalities and the Gender Department for co-hosting this event. I had the great pleasure and privilege of working with Ava Colony when we talked together at City of London Polytechnic, now uh, London Metropolitan University. Ava was an economist whose work and passion were concerned with analyzing and redressing inequality. She was an outstanding teacher, writer, colleague, and friend. Ava and her family were deeply involved in opposing inequality and in the struggle for real democracy and peace in Europe. Given the present high levels of inequality, as well as political uncertainty, and the rise of populism, it is even more important to commemorate her life and work. After Ava's untimely death in 1985, Amartya Sen established a trust to commemorate Ava's life and work and to reflect and further her belief in the possibility of social justice. The trust is made up of colleagues from the City of London Polytechnic, London Metropolitan University, friends and family, including her two children, Indrana and Kabir and it's chaired by Chris Elvin. The, <clears throat> the principal activity of the Trust is to award bursaries to economic students at London Metropolitan. This year we made 10 awards to students, including to refugees and people experiencing severe social disadvantage to enable them to complete their studies. By making these awards, we hope to redress at least some aspects of inequality, thereby acting out Ava's belief. The Trust also organises events linked to Ava's interest. The first five were published in a book called Living as Equals, and this includes an essay by Amartya Sen on social commitment and democracy. It was edited by Paul Barker, who sadly passed away recently. Tonight, we are really delighted that Arundhati Roy will be contributing to these events by reading from her work, engaging in discussion with Amartya Sen, as well as yourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. And now to this uh, main event of this evening. It's my great pleasure and honor to introduce the two speakers this evening. Of course, you and I both could say that they don't need any introduction at all. After all, we are here because we know who they are and we want to listen to them. 
true as this is, however, to say this will only be to take away our chance of collectively celebrating their work, their art, their thinking. And when so much of the globe is steeped in darkness and in difficult times, it becomes only imperative on us to celebrate work and ideas that champion alternative, non-exploitative, egalitarian visions of living together. Both speakers here this evening represent that rare combination of being virtuosos of their craft while also demonstrating a deep and exemplary commitment to social justice. They are public intellectuals and thinkers extraordinaire. Their writings reflect their intense public engagement, asking profound, unflinching and difficult questions and raising fundamental political and structural critiques. Amartya Sen is Thomas W. Lamont Professor and Professor of Economics and Philosophy at Harvard University and was until 2004 the Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. His research has ranged over social choice theory, economic theory, ethics and political philosophy, welfare economics, development economics and gender studies. His books have been translated into more than 30 languages and include, among so many, on economic inequality, on ethics and economics, development as freedom, the argumentative Indian, the idea of justice, among so many others. He has been the recipient of many, many honors and prizes, including the Nobel Prize for Economics. Arundhati Roy is novelist, essayist, and activist. Her luminous and sublime prose is driven by a political urgency, fierce solidarity, and integrity that speaks to power, powerlessness, discrimination, occupation, empire building, war on terror, dispossession, rights, entitlements, to the various dilemmas of the human condition and to the place of literature in our times. She is the author of The God of Small Things, which won the Booker Prize in 1997 and has been translated into more than 40, or actually now that I know 52 languages, and has also recently published The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Her works of nonfiction include, amongst many, The Algebra of Infinite Justice, Listening to the Grasshopper, The Broken Republic, and a book of conversations bearing the title of this evening's event, The Shape of the Beast. And I've just come to know that, uh, and I thought I'd share this with you, because this is among very privileged information indeed, that um, a book of essays uh, titled Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction, is just about to be published in, in the next few months. Tonight, Arundhati Roy will speak for about 43, three quarters <laughs> minutes. <laughs> she will be reading selective extracts from her literary and political work, after which there will be a Q&A, which in the first instance will be led by Professor Amartya Sen. Towards the end, Arundhati will read a short excerpt from her book, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Please join me in welcoming Arundhati Roy. Thank you so much, and it's lovely to see you all here. Thank you, Amartya, for inviting me and for being here and for being part of this bloody big fight we have ahead of us. Uh, it's so important for all of us from different, different angles to come at it, but to understand that what we are facing is something truly frightening. Um, and if I may say, say so, especially in India. So uh, this, this 43 minutes and 13 and a half seconds that I have, um, I actually want to read to you from the Clark Lecture, which I wrote to be delivered in Trinity, 
Unfortunately, I didn't deliver it in person because of some dispute between the Union and Trinity, but it was published yesterday. It's a lecture in English literature. I know that, uh, you know, you're not an English literature institute, so I'm going to try and uh, remove the literature part of it <laughs> and speak about the rest. But there will be, I'm warning you, a little literature because I can't seem to say anything without somehow getting into storytelling. So uh, the, le the lecture was called The Graveyard Talks Back, Fiction in the Time of Fake News. <clears throat> um, so graveyards in India are for the most part Muslim graveyards because Christians make up a minuscule part of the population. And as you know, Hindus and most other communities cremate their dead. The Muslim graveyard, the Kabristan, has always loomed large in the imagination and rhetoric of Hindu nationalists. Musalman ka ekhistan, Kabristan ya Pakistan. Only one place for the Musalman, the graveyard or Pakistan, is among the more, secret, more frequent war cries of the murderous, sword-wielding militias and vigilante mobs that have overrun India's streets. As the Hindu right has taken almost complete control of the state as well as non-state apparatuses, the increasingly blatant social and economic boycott of Muslims has pushed them further down the societal ladder and made them even more unwelcome in secular public spaces and housing colonies. For reasons of safety as well as necessity, in urban areas, many Muslims, including the elite, are retreating into enclaves that are often hatefully re referred to as mini-Pakistans. Now in life, as in death, segregation is becoming the rule. In cities like Delhi, meanwhile, the homeless and destitute congregate in shrines and around graveyards, which have become resting places not just for the dead, but for the living too. I'll speak today about the Muslim graveyard, the Kabristan, as the new ghetto, literally as well as metaphorically, of the new Hindu India, and about writing fiction in these times. I'll try not to do that. <clears throat> In some senses, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, my novel published in 2017, can be read as a conversation between two graveyards. One, a graveyard where Anjum, born as a boy to a Muslim family in the walled city of Delhi, makes her home and gradually builds a guest house, the Jannat guest house. Jannat means uh, paradise in Urdu, where a range of people come and seek shelter. The other, the ethereally beautiful valley of Kashmir, which is now, after 30 years of war, covered with graveyards, and in this way has become, metaphorically, almost a graveyard itself. So, a graveyard covered by the Jannat guest house, and a Jannat covered with graveyards. This conversation, this chatter between two graveyards is, and always has been, strictly prohibited in India. In the real world, it's considered a high crime, treasonous even. Fortunately, in fiction, I hope, different rules apply. Before we get to the forbidden conversation, let me describe for you the view from my writing desk. Some writers may wish to shut the window or move to another room. 
but I cannot. So you will have to bear with me because it is in this landscape that I heat my stove and store my pots and pans. It is here that I make my literature. Today marks the 194th day of the Indian government's shutdown of the internet in Kashmir. After months of having no access to mob mobile data or broadband, now seven million Kashmiris who live under the densest military occupation in the world have been allowed to view what is known as a white list, a handful of government-approved websites. These include a few selected news portals, but not the social media that Kashmiris so depend on, given the hostility to them of the mainstream Indian media, to put out their version of their lives. In other words, Kashmir now has a formerly firewalled internet, which could well be the future for many of us in the world. It's the equivalent of giving a thirsty person water from an eyedropper. <clears throat> in, so since 2014, India has had 365 internet shutdowns. In, uh, recently, the protests in Delhi and Uttar Pradesh, they started doing that as well, you know, shutting down the internet. The internet shutdown has crippled almost every aspect of daily life in Kashmir. The full extent of the hardship it has caused has not even been studied yet. It's a pioneering experiment in the mass violation of human rights. The information siege aside, thousands of Kashmiris, including children, civil society activists, and political figures are imprisoned, some under the draconian Public Safety Act. These are just the bare bones of an epic and continuously unfolding tragedy. While the world looks away, business has ground to a halt, tourism has slowed to a trickle, Kashmir has been silenced and is slowly falling off the map. None of us needs to be reminded of what happens when places fall off the map. When the blowback comes, I, for one, will not be among those feigning surprise. Meanwhile, the Indian government has passed a new citizenship law that, even if intricately constructed, is blatantly discriminatory against Muslims. So that is the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, which comes along with two other programs called the National Population Register and the National Register of Citizens. So when you look at these three together, you see a, a process which started in the eastern state of Assam, where already two million, almost two million people are off the register and therefore run the risk of being declared stateless. And it's so much chaos there. The detention centers are being built and yet uh, you know, instead of being shocked by the chaos, the government has announced its intention to do it in all of India and, and very, very blatantly targeting the Muslim community as policy, but in implementation, obviously the most vulnerable, vulnerable communities of people who don't have any kinds of papers. I mean, even not the vulnerable people, but, you know, obviously it is uh, a class issue. So those who don't have papers will be destabilized. People like Amartya and I actually belong in a detention center because we do have these Bangladeshi links, but they won't put us in. But everybody else is, is going to be living in this, in the system of destabilized existence, you know, prey to all sorts of things. 
Um, <clears throat> I won't, I, I'd written about this in a lecture I delivered last November, so I'm not going to elaborate a lot on it, except to say that it could create a crisis of statelessness on a scale previously unknown. It is for the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, the wellspring of Hindu nationalism and the parent of Narendra Modi's Bharatiya Janta Party, what Germany's 1935 Nuremberg laws were for the Third Reich, conferring upon it the power to decide who was a rightful citizen and who wasn't, based on specific documents that people were expected to produce to prove their heredity. That lecture, Intimations of an Ending, is one of the bleakest texts I have ever written. Three months on, that bleakness has turned into cautious hope. The Citizenship Amendment Bill was passed in Parliament on the 11th of December 2019 and became the Citizenship Amendment Act. Within days, students rose, the first to react were the students of Aligarh Muslim University and Jamia Millia Islamia University in Delhi. In response, riot police attacked the campuses with tear gas and stun guns. Students were ruthlessly beaten, some were maimed, and one was blinded in one eye. Anger has now spread to campuses across the country and spilled over into the streets. Outraged citizens led from the front by students and Muslim women have occupied public squares and blocked roads for weeks together. The Hindu right, which lavishes enormous energy on stigmatizing the Muslim man as a woman-hating terrorist jihadi, and even offers itself up as the savior of Muslim women, is a little confounded by this brilliant, articulate, and very female anger. In Delhi's now iconic Shaheen Bagh protest, thousands, tens of thousands, and sometimes 100,000 people have blocked a major road for almost two months. This has spawned many Shaheen Baghs across the country. Millions are on the streets, taking back their country, waving the Indian flag and pledging to uphold the Indian constitution and reading out its preamble, which says India is a secular socialist republic. The anthem of this new uprising, the slogan that is reverberating through towns and college campuses and crossroads across the country, is a variation of the iconic chant of the Kashmiri freedom struggle, Ham Kya Chahate Azadi, what do we want? Freedom. That slogan is the refrain within a set of lyrics that describes people's anger, their dream, and the battle ahead. Not to suggest that any one group can claim ownership of the Azadi slogan. It has a long and varied history. It was the slogan of the Iranian Revolution and of a section of the feminist movement in our subcontinent in the 70s and 80s. But over the last three decades, it has, more than anything else, become known as the anthem of the Kashmiri street. And now, while Kashmiri streets have been silenced, the irony is that its people's refrain with similar lyrics, rhythm, and cadence echoes on the streets of the country that most Kashmiris view as their colonizer. What lies between the silence of one street and the sound of the other? Is it a chasm, or could it become a bridge? To be sure, protesters in India are calling for an entirely different kind of azadi. Azadi from poverty, from hunger, from caste, from patriarchy, and from repression. It's not Azadi from India, it's Azadi 
in India, said Kanhaiya Kumar, the charismatic young politician, credited with customizing and retooling the chant for the uprising in India today. On the streets, every one of us is painfully aware that even an atom of sympathy for the Kashmiri cause expressed by even a single person, even accidentally, will be met by nationalist hellfire that will incinerate not just the protests, but every last person standing. And if that person happens to be Muslim, it would be something exponentially worse than even hellfire. Because when it comes to Muslims, for everything from parking tickets to petty crime, different rules apply. Not on paper, but effectively. That's how deeply unwell India has become. <clears throat> At the heart of these massive democratic protests of the anti-Muslim citizenship laws, therefore, inside this borrowed song from Kashmir, is an enforced pin-drop silence over crimes committed in the Kashmir Valley. That silence is decades old, and the shame of it is corrosive. The shame must be shared not just by Hindu nationalists, not just by India's entire political spectrum, but also by the majority of the Indian people, including many who are bravely out on the streets today. It's a hard thing to have to hold in one's heart. But perhaps it's only a matter of time before the cry for justice by the young on India's streets will come to include a demand for justice for Kashmiris too. Perhaps this is why in the BJP rule state of Uttar Pradesh, the Chief Minister Yogi Adityanath, seen by many as a Modi in the making, has declared the Azadi slogan to be treasonous. The government's response to protests has been ferocious. Modi fired the starting gun with his trademark toxic innuendo. At an election rally, he said, protests Protesters could be easily identified by their clothes, implying that they were all Muslim. This is untrue, but it serves to clearly mark off the population that must be punished. In Uttar Pradesh, Yogi Adityanath has, like some kind of gangster, openly vowed revenge. More than 20 people have been killed so far. At a public tribunal a few weeks ago, I heard testimonies of how police in the state are entering people's homes in the dead of night, terrorizing and looting them. People spoke of being kept naked and beaten for days in police lockups. They described how hospitals had turned away critically injured people, how Hindu doctors had refused to treat them. In videos of the police attacking protesters, the slurs they use against Muslims are unspeakable. Their muttered prejudice is almost more frightening than the injuries they inflict. When a government openly turns on a section of its own population with all the power at its disposal, the terror it generates is not easy for those outside that community to comprehend or even believe. Needless to say, political support for Adityanath has been forthright and unflinching. Uh, the governor of West Bengal, the BJP, the BJP president of West Bengal boasted, our government shot them like dogs. Uh, a union minister in Modi's cabinet addressed a rally in Delhi with shouts of, Desh ke ko, and the crowd screamed back, Goli maro salonko, what's to be done with traitors of the nation, shoot the bastards. A member of parliament said that unless the protesters of Shaheen Bagh were dealt with, they would enter homes and rape your sisters and daughters, which is an interesting idea considering the protests 
protesters are predominantly women. As India embraces majoritarian Hindu nationalism, which is a polite term for fascism, many liberals and even communists continue to be squeamish about using that term. This notwithstanding the fact that the RSS ideologues are openly worshipful of Hitler and Mussolini, and that Hitler has found his way onto the cover of an Indian school textbook about great world leaders alongside Modi and Gandhi. The division in opinions on the use of the term comes down to whether you believe that fascism becomes fascism only after a continent was destroyed and millions of people were exterminated in gas chambers, or whether you believe that fascism is an ideology that led to those high crimes, that can lead to those high crimes, and that those who subscribe to it are fascist. The scaffolding, the skeletal structure over which the specious wrath that fuels fascism drapes itself is fake news. The foundation on which that scaffolding rests is fake history, perhaps the oldest form of fake news. The history being peddled by Hindu nationalists, that hackneyed tale of spurious valor and exaggerated victimhood, in which history is turned into mythology and mythology into history, has been very ably perforated and demolished by serious scholars. But the tale was never meant for serious scholars. It's meant for an audience that few serious scholars can hope to reach. While we laugh in derision, it is spreading like an epidemic and blossoming in the popular imagination like a brain-deadening malignancy. But there's something more deeper and more disturbing at work here, which I cannot dwell on, though I will gesture towards. If any of my assertions startle you, please know that I have elaborated on them at length in a book called The Doctor and the Saint. At the heart of Hindu nationalism and the cult of Hindu supremacy is the principle of Varnashram Dharm, the caste system, or what the anti-caste tradition calls Brahmanvad, Brahminism. Brahminism organizes society in a vertical hierarchy based on a supposedly celestially ordained graded scale of purity and pollution, pollution entitlements and duties, and hereditary occupation. Right on top of the ladder are Brahmins, the embodiment of purity and the resting place of all entitlement. At the bottom are the outcasts, Dalits, once known as untouchables, who have been dehumanized, ghettoed, and violated in unimaginable ways for centuries. None of these categories is homogenous. Each is divided into its own universe of hierarchies. The principles of equality, fraternity, or sorority is anathema to the caste system. It's not hard to see how the idea that some human beings are inherently superior or inferior to others by divine mandate, slides e easily into the fascist idea of a master race. To escape the tyranny of Brahminism, over the centuries, millions of Dalits and people from other subjugated castes converted to Islam, Sikhism, and Christianity. So the politics of Hindu majoritarianism and its persecution of minorities is also intricately, intricately intertwined with the question of caste. Even today, caste is the engine and the organizing principle that runs almost every aspect of modern Indian society. 
And yet so many celebrated writers, historians, philosophers, sociologists, filmmakers have collectively managed to produce a formidable body of work on India, work that is domestically as well as internationally applauded and handsomely rewarded, that either turns caste into a footnote or completely elides the issue. I would call that fake history too, the great project of unseeing. A fine example of this is Sir Richard Attenborough's Oscar-winning film, Gandhi, which was co-funded by the government of India. The film is inaccurate to the point of being false about Gandhi's time in South Africa and his attitude toward black South Africans. Almost more disturbing is the complete absence of Dr. Bhimrao Ambedkar, who is easily as much or more of an icon in India as Gandhi is. Ambedkar, a Dalit from Maharashtra, was a man who challenged Gandhi morally, politically, and intellectually. He denounced Hinduism and the caste discrimination it entailed and showed Dalits a path pass out by renouncing the Hindu religion in favor of Buddhism. Both were extraordinary men, and the conflict between them has contributed greatly to our thinking today. While Gandhi's views on caste were not inimical to those of the Hindu right, his views on the place of Muslims in India were, and that is what eventually led to his assassination by a former member, although some say a member, of the RSS. Still, what does it mean, this exalted, seriously falsified mythification of Gandhi and the erasure of Ambedkar in a government co-funded, a Congress government co-funded, multi-million dollar movie extravaganza that still forms the basis of most of the world's idea of Gandhi and the freedom struggle. Yes, the film was made a long time ago, but where's the corrective, the other extravaganza that tries, at least tries to tell the truth? Where are the big films about Kabir, Ravi Das, Ambedkar, Periyar, Ayankali, Pandita, Ramabai, Jyotibas and Savitri Bai Pule, and all those who fought against caste through the ages. There are Indian liberals who sternly castigate the British for leaving British colonialism out of their history books, but are guilty of exactly the same wrongdoing when it comes to the practice of caste. In South Africa, Gandhi tried to distance dominant caste passenger Indians from oppressed caste indentured laborers and black Africans whom he called Kafirs and Savages, a campaign that he sustained for years. In 1894, he wrote an open letter to the Natal Legislative Assembly that Indians and English both spring from a common stock called the Indo-Aryan. This is the conceit of many dominant caste Hindus even today. They like to think of themselves as a conquering race of Aryan descent. And yet, when it comes to the Muslim question, they suddenly transform themselves into the aboriginal sons of the soil of the Hindu homeland and mark Muslims and Christians off as foreigners. To our paid-up Hindu fascists known affectionately as the Sangh Parivar, the family collective, Muslims are the internal enemy whose loyalties, real loyalties lie outside India. For many good-hearted liberals, Muslims are welcome guests, but guests nevertheless, burdened with the expectation of good behavior, which is a terrible thing to thrust on fellow citizens. It's like giving women rights 
as long as they promise to be good, good mothers, sisters, wives, and daughters. Even the most well-intentioned progressive people often counter anti-Muslim slander by talking up Muslim patriotism. Many liberals, including some Muslims themselves, have described Muslims as Indians by choice and not by chance, suggesting that they chose to stay in India and not move to Pakistan after partition in 1947. Many did, many didn't, and for many the choice simply did not exist. But to frame Indian Muslims as a people who are in India by choice draws a dangerous ring a false bloodline around a whole population, suggesting it has a less elemental relationship with the land and could just as well live elsewhere. This plays straight into the binary of the good Muslim, bad Muslim, Muslim patriot, Muslim jihadi, and could inadvertently trap a whole population into having to redeem itself with a lifetime of regular flag-waving and constitution-reading, which is very bad for the IQ. It also inadvertently shows up the appalling logic of Hindu nationalists. Muslims have so many homelands, but Hindus have only India. The corollary to this, of course, is the well-known taunt thrown at Muslims as well as anyone else who challenges the Hindu nationalist view. Go to Pakistan. All of this to say that the foundation of today's fascism, the unacceptable fake history of Hindu nationalism rests on a deeper foundation of another apparently more acceptable, more sophisticated set of fake histories that elide the stories of caste, of women, and a range of other genders, and of how those stories intersect below the surface of the grand narrative of class and capital. To challenge fascism means to challenge all of this. Sometimes I feel self-servingly perhaps, the way a surgeon has faith in surgery, that fiction is uniquely positioned to do this because fiction has the capaciousness, the freedom and latitude to hold out a universe of complexity because every human being is really a walking sheaf of identities, a Russian doll that contains identities within identities, each of which can be shuffled around each of which may defy some and simultaneously comply with other normal conventions by which people are crudely and cruelly defined, identified, and organized, particularly so in this feudal medieval society of ours in India, one that is pretending to be modern, yet continues to practice one of the most brutal forms of social hierarchy in the world. I'm not talking here of fiction as an expose, or the writer of social wrongs, pardon the pun. Nor do I mean fiction that is a disguised manifesto or is written in order to address a particular issue or subject. I mean fiction that attempts to recreate the universe of the familiar, but then makes visible what the project of unseen seeks to conceal. The project of unseen works in mysterious ways, It can even appear in the seductive avatar of high praise. For example, in my first novel, The God of Small Things, published more than 20 years ago, sexual and emotional transgression across caste lines and the complicated relationship between caste and communism are central themes. Much has been said about the novel's 
lyricism, its metaphors, its structure, its understanding of children's minds. But except in Kerala, where the novel was very well understood and therefore ran into some hostility, I was uh, dragged to court for corrupting public morality. The caste question tends to be glossed over or treated as a class issue, as though Amu and Velita were Lady Chatelet and Oliver Mellors. This is to understand absolutely nothing about Indian society. Certainly class and caste overlap, but they aren't identical, as India's many communist parties are discovering to their peril. One of the most prominent faces in the protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act is a young Dalit politician who heads the Bhim Army, named after Bhim Rao Ambedkar. He calls himself Chandrasekhar Azad Ravan. Ravan was, of course, the demon that Lord Ram uh, vanquished in Lanka, in, in, in Sri Lanka. And, uh, you know, that battle seen by Hindus as a battle of good against evil. So what does that signify when, when a person has chosen to not just honor but personify Ravan, Ram's vanquished demon foe? It's an audacious declaration that at least some people view Hinduism, not just Hindutva, the Hindu nationalist political ideology, but Hinduism, the religion, as a form of colonialism and cruel subjugation. Ravan is on the front page, a, a subjugation of Aryans uh, again, by the, of the Dravidians. So it's like the making history into mythology and mythology into history. Ravan is on the front page of the papers, infuriating the government by making common cause with the Muslim community. He appeared late one night on the crowded steps of Delhi's Jama Masjid, a night filled with shouts of Jai Bhim and Inkilab Zindabad. Long live Bhimrao Ambedkar and long live the revolution. A precarious solidarity is evolving between Muslims and Ambedkarites and followers of other anti-caste leaders like Jyotiba and Savitri Bhai Pule, Sant Ravidas and Birsa Munda, as well as a new generation of young leftists who, unlike the older generation, place caste alongside class at the center of their worldview. It's still brittle, Still, still full of material and ideological contradictions, still full of suspicion and resentment, but it's the only hope we have. The trouble is that this fragile coalition is being slaughtered even as it is being born. The fake news project, its history department, as well as its current affairs desk, has corporatized, Bollywoodized, televised, Twitterized, atomized, weaponized, WhatsAppized and is disseminating its product at the speed of light. It's all around us. It's the weather we endure and the air we breathe. It's the smell of spring and the winter chill. It's what we see and hear and swim in. It's the threat. It's the promise. It's the gray pillar that presses down on our hearts in our dreams and in our waking hours. It's what we react to and what we write against. And it's what makes writing that most perilous of activities, whose consequences are not literary prizes or good or bad reviews. For some of us, every sentence spoken, written, real or fake, every word, every punctuation mark can be torn from the body of a text, 
mangled and turned into a court notice, a police case, a mob attack, a television lynching by crazed news anchors, India's speciality. Or, as in the case of the journalist Gauri Lankesh and so many less well-known others, an assassination. Gauri was shot dead outside her home in Bangalore in September 2017. The last message she sent me was a photograph of her holding up the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Assassination is the extreme end of the spectrum. Elsewhere on it are threats, arrests, beatings, and if you're a woman, fake videos and character assassination. She's a whore, she's a drunk, neither of which do I personally consider an insult. <laughs> and not to forget, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> And not to forget the all-time favorite, she should be gang-raped. Attacks on people with a profile, like myself, whether they are wildly defamatory or absolutely true, she's not a Hindu, or a physical attack on meetings and stages or legal harassment with false cases, are usually appeals for the attention of the BJP high command by political workers aspiring for a promotion, a kind of job application, because it's well known that those who show this kind of initiative are often rewarded, lynchers are fated, those accused of murder become cabinet ministers. In keeping with the spirit, days before the Ministry of Utmost Happiness was published, a reasonably well-known Bollywood actor who's also a member of the BJP in Parliament said that the Indian, uh, suggested that the Indian Army tie me to a jeep and use me as a human shield in Kashmir, as it had re recently done with a Kashmiri civilian. All this is nothing compared to what millions of people in India are having to live through. I mention it only in order to think aloud about how this continuous and seizing threat affects writers and their writing. Each one of us reacts differently, of course. Speaking for myself, as the pressure mounts and the windows are shut one by one, every cell of my writing brain seems to want to force them open again. Does that shrink or expand writers, sharpen or blunt them? Most people, I imagine, believe it would restrict a writer's range and imagination steal away those moments of intimacy and contemplation without which a literary text does not amount to very much. I've often caught myself wondering if I were to be incarcerated or driven underground, would it liberate my writing? Would what I write become simpler, more lyrical perhaps, less negotiated? It's possible, but right now as we struggle to keep the windows open, I believe our liberation lies in the negotiation. Hope lies in texts that can accommodate and keep alive our intricacy, our complexity, and our density against the onslaught of the terrifying, sweeping simplifications of fascism. As they barrel towards us, speeding down their straight, smooth highway, we greet them with our beehive, our maze. We keep our complicated world with all its seams exposed alive in our writing. After 20 years of writing fiction and nonfiction that tracks the rise of Hindu nationalism, after years of reading about the rise and fall of European fascism, 
I've begun to wonder why fascism, although it's by no means the same everywhere, is so recognizable across histories and cultures. It's not just the fascists that are recognizable. The strong man, the ideological army, the squalid dreams of Aryan superiority, the dehumanization and ghettoization of the internal enemy, the massive and utterly ruthless propaganda machine, the false flag attacks and assassinations, the fawning businessmen and film stars, the attack on universities, the fear of intellectuals, the specter of detention camps, and the hate-fueled zombie population that chants the Eastern equivalent of Heil, Heil, Heil. But it's also the rest of us, the exhausted, quarreling opposition, the vain, nitpicking left, the equivocating liberals who spent years building the road that has led us to the situation we find ourselves in and are now behaving like shocked, righteous rabbits who never imagined that rabbits were an important ingredient of the rabbit stew that was always on the menu. <laughs> and of course, the wolves who ignored the decent folks' counsel of moderation and sloped off into the wilderness to howl unceasingly, futilely, and if they were female, then shrilly and hysterically at the terrifying misshapen moon. All of us are recognizable. So at the end of it all, is fascism a kind of feeling in the way anger, fear, or love are feelings that manifest itself in recognizable ways across cultures? Does a country fall into fascism the way a person falls in love, or more accurately, in hate? Has India fallen in hate? Because truly the most palpable feeling in the air is the barbaric hatred the current regime and its supporters show towards a section of the population. But equally palpable now is the love that has risen to oppose this. You can see it in people's eyes, hear it in protesters' song and speech. It's a battle of those who know how to think against those who know how to hate. A battle of lovers against haters. It's an unequal battle because the love is on the street and vulnerable. The hate is on the street too, but it is armed to the teeth and protected by all the machinery of the state. Okay, that's half a lecture for you. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm speechless. I'm so, I mean, yes, wow. Um, Amate, did, did you want to lead us into some conversation? Well, can I do it sitting? Yes, absolutely. Just go ahead. As age advances, I think sitting is getting more and more like the idea that it's difficult to cross street and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ernst uh, uh, lecture was totally unsurprising to me, <laughs> in the sense it's as brilliant, as listenery, as beautiful, and as full of really pleasurable remarks and humor, as I expected. So thank you very much thank indeed. Um, someday I would hear a lecture and say, well, 
it wasn't quite like that. I hadn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, I think when I, I still remember reading The God of Small Things, and we just taken over by the uh, by the 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 sheer beauty of the fiction as well as the message. And uh, you, you may or may not remember then. That's the time immediately after when I yes, of course I, I was ready to come How can and I be not with remember? me. I would. Come on, I'm out there fishing. And she came to the Trinity Master's Lodge, and that was a fantastic occasion for me. Um, I think the great thing about, uh, well, many great things about Untati um, is that when you hear her, it's not only that you get illuminated and instructed on what she is saying, but it makes you think about other things that you might go on from there to think about. So in that sense, the true quality of being a leader, a leader of thought, Orindasi has always certainly had for me. Uh, it's not that we never disagreed, <laughs> but, but even when, when I disagreed, I got something really exciting from reading or listening to Orindasi. I would comment on um, a few things which are really uh, further along what she's suggesting. Uh, one of them, I think she commented on this issue about Hindu nationalism. Now, it's an odd thing because Hindus are not a nation, really. <laughs> it's, a, it's a community, it's a religion. What is common in the religion may be a further issue, but uh, it uh, exists across the world. I see that the next chancellor of this country, Chancellor of Exchequer, describes himself as a Hindu. And that is a, that may not be exactly the same sense as many others in BJP or Shilsen and Deskalas there. Uh, the Hindu, and I think it's quite important in my judgment following Arundhati to bring that distinction in mind. Because nationalism gives it a standing which Hindu, so-called Hindu nationalism cannot have. It's sectarianism after all. It is separating out a particular group and describing them as, as a nation. And you know, it's, it's often thought that in the context of the partition of India, that this is something Jinnah contributed by two-nation theory. The fact is that before Jinnah, there were RSS activists already, yeah, yeah. who were <clears throat> describing Hindu nation. And that has always been a problem. It was a problem with Jinnah too, but it was a problem earlier and later and now with the idea of Hindu nationalism. And it's quite important because when we think about our identity, we have to recognize um, what any religious 
issue stands for. And I think in some ways I was um, quite surprised when I went to, uh, when Bangladesh uh, was formed and, and, I, and I was getting an honorary degree and I asked people saying, is there going to be a religious element in it? And I was told, no, 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 it's not a, it's not a, um, uh, it's not a, in any way, a religion-oriented function. It is a convocation. So I went there, and I sat there, and I, it began with two minutes of reading from Quran, <laughs> which was very nice to hear, but it's certainly religion. And then before I could take my breath, there was two minutes of reading from Bhagavad Gita, two minutes of reading from Bible, and two minutes of reading from Dhammapadam. No? <laughs> and, uh, and that totality, and if you think about it, 92% of the Bangladeshis are Muslim. But in the idea that the Bengali nationalism is not the same thing as Muslim, being Muslim is very important, if you are a Muslim. On the other hand, there are these other elements present at all, and in, in, in there. And one of the things that's happening at the moment is an attempt to make us forget that. That it, it's not just that the um, dealing with the minorities, the um, ill-treatment of minorities are objectionable in themselves, but also the whole idea of Indian nationhood is being forgotten. Now, it's very interesting in this context, and I wanted to mention Ambedkar. Ambedkar had um, different points of view. I mean, he was a uh, nationalist, nevertheless, wanted independence, wanted the Brits to go away, and he was the prime factor behind the Constitution and its secularism, which is so much under stress. But when he had to express his um, dissatisfaction with Hindu custom, particularly the caste system, what did he do? He announced that he was a Buddhist, and there was a ceremony. Now, being a Buddhist doesn't make you non-Indian, for one thing, Buddha himself, though, with some apology to Nepal, there was not a separate country at that time, uh, came from the same place. And so that was not a denial of nationhood, it was a kind of assertion of nationhood. He did not become a Christian, and uh, he did not become anything else like that. But he was doing something which kept his some sense of national identity. Now, not for all of us, the national identity may not be very important. And sometimes it's very important to forget it. Indeed, Rabindranath Tagore has passages where you say, very important to recognize your nationhood, very important to forget it too. Because the world consists of many nations, we have to get together and work. But I think this issue, I think, is again a very intrinsic element. It, relates to um, uh, his thoughts in several places. And where it particularly is important is 
I think the idea that what we need is tolerance. Now, I think this is, I think, ultimately a, a terrible thought. Because tolerance is something where you have a genuine reason to disagree, but you tolerate it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we always had we tolerate bad teachers. <laughs> I mean, so you have tolerate uh, agonizingly bossy cousins uh, and so on. But what is special about the different sex, sectarian parts of India is that they've acted together, they had cooperation. And one reason why Kabir or Dadu or Mirabai are important, you don't know whether Kabir was Muslim or Hindu. Uh, my son, who is called Kabir, is very proud of that, and he's always telling everyone that Kabir means great. Do you know that? <laughs> and he was a 16th century poet, but he was born in a Muslim family, had many Hindu beliefs, many Muslim beliefs, and many other beliefs which come, came from somewhere or other. I think that is very important. You can't understand Indian music, for example, without um, understanding the Hindu-Muslim cooperation in that. And you don't even think of a Hindu-Muslim cooperation. It's not particularly important that Ravi Shankar was Hindu or Ali Akbar Khan was Muslim. They were musicians, it so happened. If you want to go and describe, I mean, it's like saying, my name begins with A. It's two. It's not an extremely important part of my identity that it begins with, uh, with A. Uh, uh, but I, I think there are many such things. I think one of the things, if I may take one minute to, if you take, um, I mean, for me, being an Indian is important. Being a Bengali is important too. And if I look at the Bengali calendar, what kind of calendar is that? What is it celebrating? You cannot do a Hindu ceremony without telling you what the date of it is, 1500, whatever it is. What is it? It began as the Muslim calendar, Hitra. So it begins with the, it's basically commemorating Muhammad's flight from Makkah to Medina. Akbar brought in Tariq Ilahi, which is the calendar for all India, and he uh, converted into a solar year, like the Hindu calendar, unlike a lunar year, which the uh, Muslim calendar had. He adjusted the date. I mean, this began from Agbar's going on to the throne, and since then it's been solar. So the Bengali, uh, the Indian Shan, Shan, lost about five or six hundred years by getting back to the Hijra. But then it's fallen behind the Hijra calendar because Hijra calendar, with its tremendous lunar phase, has gone ahead with 360 days in a year, whereas the uh, Bengali calendar, you know, struggled through a solar year and fallen behind all of them. So when a devoted 
religious Hindu sits down and says, in the year of such and such, what is this Hindu commemorating? Not Ram, not Durga, but Muhammad's journey from Makkah to Medina, measured in combined lunar and solar reckoning. So that's cooperation. And so much of India, architecture, painting, literature, and I already mentioned music, is like that. So I think the attempt to segregate the section is not only terrible as an exercise in violating human rights, and not surprisingly, that point was noted when the Jamia Millia and Aligarh Muslim University began the revolt. It's not confined to that by any means now. But the, it, it's speaking for all of India. Aligarh Muslim University wasn't speaking for a Muslim identity. They were speaking for an Indian identity. And I think the point that uh, the, the um, shape of the shape of the beast huh? <laughs> it brings us what the beast has made us lose and what we need to resist and why. It's also, I, I was reminded, I'm not sure that you refer it here, I don't know whether you do in the book, uh, Faiz Ahmed Faiz's poem, great Pakistani poet, uh, who I knew slightly, he was in Lahore, when I visited Lahore in 19, I think, um, 63, I had a chance. But they, his poem called Ham De Kenge, We Shall See. What does, why is that important? Ham De Kenge is extremely important for two different reasons. One is, when you are in a situation, it looks as if you are losing battles, as indeed we are often, because the dominance of uh, um, uh, Hindutva is so strong now. It, to say Hamde Kenya is that, yeah, don't just forget that you would forever, <laughs> don't think that you're going to be forever ruling us. We are all seeing it. It also says history will judge you. It also says we know what's wrong even if we are not in a position to exercise it. And then we may try to exercise it. And the thing that Aruntati um, was celebrating, which I celebrate equally with her, uh, is, 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 is the protest movement that come across all over India. And this is also a result of Hamde Kenge. It's, a, it's, it's, it's seeing what's going on now, and it's not something that you could let go. It's just, even if you're not winning a battle right now, the battle is there, you could engage it in it, and you will continue to engage in it in the future. And what is really important at this time 
is, you know, when things happen, suddenly people get uh, arrested on grounds of sedition. When the word sedition has almost nothing to do with what they had done, this has happened to many people. I can claim to be some of the student leaders as friends, like Kanaya and, 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 and others who had uh, been arrested for sedition, beaten up in custody, and so on. And even though the Indian court system is not terribly bad, but it's so slow that often nothing much has happened. But how the heck can they apply again that? That we also see you're arresting people for sedition when they haven't done anything like that. So I think the this totality of these concerns, whether it affects you or not directly, hum dekenge is hum for all people, we. Like we the people, we are, we are looking at it. Sometimes we are affected, oddly, I know that, <laughs> I that you mentioned about citizenship problem. I will have a huge problem, I don't have a birth certificate. In fact, most Indians of my time don't have a birth certificate. I was born at home. And no one, no one was given me a certificate. So if I have to establish that I am a Hindu, and that's what the, in my judgment, complete violation of the Constitution, the act that was passed by the Parliament, both houses, oddly enough, um, says, I have to, if I say that I'm, if I'm going away from, if I say that LSE or Trinity misbehaved and tortured me, or Harvard did torture me, and I want to get, I want to assert my Indian citizenship, I remain an Indian citizen, by the way. I do have a passport, and not a birth certificate. But if I had to, if somebody questioned me, why do you have a passport? Where do your birth certificate? I cannot establish it that easily. And for me, it's not a big problem, because it's well known that maybe I'm not Muslim. On the other hand, for a Muslim, it could be quite a big problem. Where did you, where, where were you at the time of partition? Where did you originate? Yeah. I have friends whose Indian citizenship question cannot be uh, uh, claims cannot be doubted at all, like Rema and so on. I, was, I came from Dhaka. Rema and so on, who is a uh, Bangladeshi intellectual, was born in Calcutta. <laughs> and he had a birth certificate from Calcutta. And on the other hand, he is a Muslim. He is, I don't think he's trying to get Indian citizenship, and there's no reason for him to want to do that. On the other hand, the total arbitrariness of this, yeah, and suddenly making some people who are quite secure, utterly insecure, and then comes the statement saying, no one citizenship is being taken away. What kind of a statement is that? No one's citizenship is being taken away, but anyone's citizenship could be questioned. And for some people, it's a hell of a problem to re-establish your citizenship. Yeah. So I think these are the things which we have to hum we have to 
think about them. And I think no one has made us see the Dekenge seeing as well, perhaps as Owen Tutti in a series of our contribution, speeches, and writings. So if I may say we are totally grateful to you, I may, if I take the opportunity of saying that my late wife, Eva Colony, had she been here, would have been, she died in 85, but if she had been here, I could see that she would have been asking us to stand and give you a standing ovation. <laughs> and I think, pardon? I think we should do it. I think you will probably do a standing ovation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Martia. Um, thank you very much. We are not done yet. Um, just to say, <laughs> we still have time on our side, but just barely just time on our side. So um, did you want to respond very quickly, Thomas? Yeah, I, just, I, just, I just wanted to say something in a few minutes uh, about the idea of the Hindu and the Hindu nation. So in fact, uh, if you were to read uh, Ambedkar's classic essay, Annihilation of Caste, he talks about the fact that really uh, people never used to refer to themselves as Hindus until the Muslims came and they started talking about the people who lived on the east of the Indus. Otherwise people referred to themselves by their caste, you know. And in fact, uh, when the idea of representative government began to to uh, become important, and it wasn't just a question of uh, a person riding to power and taking the throne. People began to worry a lot about numbers. You know, that is when the idea of having a constituency began, and that is when what we know today as Hindutva began. It was actually not religious; it was actually a political thing. You know, and so uh, you had, you had, uh, and that was when. Um, the Dalits and other oppressed castes who had been turning to Sikhism, to Christianity, to Buddhism, uh, and therefore um, leaving Hinduism, suddenly there was an anxiousness about how can we keep these people in the Hindu fold. And that was when organizations that preceded the RSS began to uh, proselytize about anti-caste and so on. They were not anti-caste. They were wanting to keep Dalits in the Hindu fold but retain caste in a very complicated way. And, and the other thing about the nation is, you know, that we tend to forget because there's so much uh, predominance of dialogue about North India and the Hindu-Muslim question. You forget that in the south, in the northeast of India, in Kashmir, there's all kinds of different conversations happening. You know, this is one of the great differences between Nazis and the RSS form of fascism is the Nazis belonged to Germany and they wanted to spread their ideology across the continent. And here you have a continent. India is really a continent. We have 780 languages and religions and communities and nations and sub-nations. And they want to shrink it into a, a, a province, not even a nation, you know. So, uh, what, uh, what Amartya Singh is correct, that you have a Hindu, uh, Hindu supremacy and one of the warring cries is Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan. 
All three happen to be Farsi words, you know. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a very oddly corny situation where you have these vertical uh, divisions of caste, then you have the Adivasis, the, the basically the indigenous, indigenous people who have been violated, whose lands are being taken over, where there are battles being fought. And since 1947, there has not been a single day when the Indian Army has not been deployed against, quote unquote, its own people. You know, Assam, Manipur, Nagaland, Kashmir, Telangana. So you have actually hundreds of thousands of deaths nailing together this democracy. But because it, it, it is a democracy and in that way the elite is sort of fused with the state, you know, it has a kind of propaganda which is now beginning to fall apart where there's so much that is just, that just doesn't make it into the narrative of what this place really is, you know? So uh, in, in, in the, in the, in the, at the turn of the uh, century, you had the same, the same proselytization, you know, what was called Gauraksha, the saving of cows, uh, the proselytizing about Hindi, and the conversion of people, indigenous people, to Hinduism called Gharvapsi. I mean, can you imagine any more ridiculous? Like, indigenous people are being told, if you become Hindus, you're coming home. And the same thing that happened in the late 1870s uh, is happening even today, you know? And they all used to function out of the same offices. So it's a, it's a project in a way that's, uh, that keeps having these different avatars. But it's really, uh, 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 I mean, in, in that sense, uh, a fascinating view of a continent trying to become a country, shrink into a country. Thank you. Thank you, Anduti. Thank you. Okay, so um, I'm, going to, I'm going to squeeze in a Q&A. Okay, and, and for, for a Q&A to happen, and we've got about just about seven minutes for that. Um, uh, and, and for that to happen, I think we've got to be super efficient with the questions we ask, so it would be great if you could very quickly say who you are and, and ask super pointed and to the point questions, please. And, and, and as you are wanting to ask your questions, could you please wait for the roving mic? to come to you uh, uh, before you ask your question. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect about three questions, perhaps, or maybe four, depending on how efficient people are in asking their questions. So I'm going to start uh, right at the back. Yes, please. Right there. Sorry. Yes. One question. One there in the middle. Again, the same row. Question two coming down there. Question three. And then there's a question here. Four. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Yes, please. Hi, my name is Jose. Thank you for the talk and the discussion. Many, many years ago, you gave a lecture in 2001 at Hampshire College, the Barlamant Lecture, in which you had said that to say that someone is a writer activist is to commodify them like a sofa bed. Yes. Right? Which, which has been done tonight also. Um, but since then, we were then uh, facing a beast and we are now facing a beast, and the shape of the beast has only grown and expanded since then. So what do you think now is the role of a writer 
I mean, this is uh, what you talked about tonight is no way limited to India. Same thing is happening in Pakistan. I myself am from Pakistan. Activists are being rounded up, thrown into jail, all of that. What would you say is the role of a writer now? Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, the one in the middle. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the lecture. My name is Jainti. Um, your piece on intimation of an ending, as you said, was a painful writing for you. It was an equally painful read for me because of its prophetic tone as well. Um, uh, it was interesting because you didn't mention the role of the Supreme Court that it has played in the recent happenings. So how far do you think it has let down the student movement and sort of turned a blind eye to the unconstitutional agenda of the ruling party? I want to know this from you because uh, you've had your fair share of brush <laughs> with the Supreme Court. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Hello. My name is Juned. I'm from Kashmir. It was a privilege hearing both of you tonight. Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, Kashmir is a bauxite mountain waiting to be mined for resources by India. Then what is it that keeps India so tethered to the idea of holding Kashmir against the wishes of Kashmiris since about 70 years now? Thank you, you thank, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, the, and the question right here in front, the second row, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Arushi. I'm a student at the LSE, and thank you so much for a very thought-provoking lecture and putting it in a way that resonates so well. My question is fairly simple. Uh, what is also evident in this situation is that it's so polarized and charged and hence highly volatile, and that is kind of seeping in in our everyday conversations. And our inability to uh, you know, respect each other's opinions and be tolerant is kind of so evident. And you pick up any crowd and you will see either supporters or protesters, and there's very few in the middle ground. So how do you wish, like, as commoners, as common citizens of the country, we engage with this without deepening the sense of hate in every way? Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to see you. You've okay. got, you've got two second. minutes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll answer you very quickly. Well, the first question about the role of a writer, you know, I never prescribe what writers should do or how they should be or what their responsibilities are. I think all a writer should be is a beautiful writer, you know? So whether you write about the sex life of a goldfish or you write about whatever, just do it really well. Uh, I said uh, sofa bed because I think that to call someone like me a writer activist is to reduce what writers are meant to be in the world, you know? we are people who, who do look around and who do write about what's going on in all kinds of different ways. The second question about the court, uh, actually in Intimations of an Ending, I did write quite a lot about the court because the NRC uh, the, was, was led from the front by the Supreme Court that acted like an executive body rather than a court, you know. Yes, I've had my run-ins with the court. I've been... Uh, called up for contempt of court, where first I was, uh, I was uh, called that woman, and my, my writings were thrown from one brother judge to the other. I used to privately refer to, to myself as the hooker that won the booker. And then, <laughs> and then uh, when they, when they, no, and when they, when they asked me to apologize and I didn't, they said I was not behaving like a reasonable man. But, 
but but um, the court has I mean the court has been uh, the behavior of the courts have been extremely extremely disturbing and the fact is that you have the RSS has sort of penetrated every institution in in the country in ways which which mean that whether or not an election is won or lost you're in a very dire state right now uh, the question about Kashmir, of course, I have written a lot about Kashmir. Uh, it's not bauxite, my friend, it's water that is in Kashmir, that uh, the control of water resources is, 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 is a very deep part of the obsession, but it's also become a fetish now. You know, it's like become a fetish which is beyond uh, reason and explanation. It is, a, it, it, it is the platform on which many terrible uh, dances are danced, you know. Um, as for the last question about polarization, you know, I, I'm personally not frightened about polarization and I am not somebody who thinks that uh, one shouldn't be clear about what is at stake here. Uh, one of the real problems is that very many powerful people in India who are liberals, who are mostly men and mostly upper caste, have spent so many years trying to minimize the danger that we were facing. So many years, you know. So many years talking, even now, talking rubbish about, you know, burkhas are the same as trishuls, you know, and all this kind of minimizing the danger because you want to occupy a middle ground on a false pretext. So if the battle has to be fought, let it be fought. You know, let's not pretend that there's no caste and let's not pretend that India is modernized when it hasn't. Let's not pretend there's not horror being committed in Kashmir. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm sounding a bit extreme, but I'm really tired of the middle ground. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, and we still have a few minutes and we'll steal a couple more. Um, and, and, and as promised, Arundhati Roy is now going to read uh, a, a, an extract from her book, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Yeah, it was this book actually that's translated into 52 languages. 52 languages. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is actually a chapter, it's chapter nine, and it's uh, called The Untimely Death of Miss Jibin the First. Ever since she was old enough to insist, she had insisted on being called Miss Jabin. It was the only name she would answer to. Everyone had to call her that, her parents, her grandparents, the neighbors too. She was a precocious devotee of the Miss fetish that gripped the Kashmir Valley in the early years of the insurrection. All of a sudden, fashionable young ladies, especially in the towns, insisted on being addressed as Miss Miss Momin, Miss Ghazala, Miss Farhana. It was only one of the many fetishes of the times. In those blood-dimmed years, for reasons nobody fully understood, people became what can only be described as fetish-prone. Other than the Miss fetish, there was a nurse fetish, a PT instructor fetish, and a roller skating fetish. So in addition to check posts, bunkers, weapons, grenades, landmines, cassipes, concertina wire, soldiers, insurgents, counter-insurgents, 
spies, special operatives, double agents, triple agents, and suitcases of cash from the agencies on both sides of the border. The valley was also awash with nurses, PT instructors, and roller skaters, and of course, misses. Among them, Miss Jubin, who didn't live long enough to become a nurse, nor even a roller skater. In the Mazar e Shahoda, the martyr's graveyard where she was first buried, the cast iron signboard that arched over the main gate said in two languages, we gave our todays for your tomorrows. It's corroded now, the green, the green paint faded, the delicate calligraphy flecked with pinholes of light. Still there it is after all these years, silhouetted like a swatch of stiff lace against the sapphire sky and the snowy, saw-toothed mountains. There it still is. Miss Jabin was not a member of the committee that decided what should be written on the signboard, but she was in no position to argue with its decision. Also, Miss Jabin hadn't notched up very many todays to trade in for tomorrows, but then the algebra of infinite justice was never so rude. In this way, without being consulted on the matter, she became one of the movement's youngest martyrs. She was buried right next to her mother, Begum Arfa Yeswi. Mother and daughter died by the same bullet. It entered Miss Jibin's head through her left temple and came to rest in her mother's heart. In the last photograph of her, the bullet wound looked like a cheerful summer rose arranged just above her left ear. A few petals had fallen on her coffin, the white shroud she was wrapped in before she was laid to rest. Miss Jabin and her mother were buried along with 15 others, taking the toll of their massacre to 17. At the time of their funeral, the Mazar Eshoda was still fairly new but was already getting crowded. However, the Intizamia committee, the organizing committee, had its ear to the ground from the very beginning of the insurrection and had a realistic idea of things to come. It planned the layout of the graves carefully, making ordered, efficient use of the available space. Everyone understood how important it was to bury martyrs' bodies in collective burial grounds and not leave them scattered in their thousands like bird feed up in the mountains or in the forests around the army camps and torture centers that had mushroomed around the valley. When the fighting began and the occupation tightened its grip, for ordinary people, the consolidation of their dead became in itself an act of defiance. Thank you.